that's one of the things I was doing all the time in the 90s. I just, I just kept making very whimsical, kind of light pictures of curly objects. It was kind of fun. So this was painted kind of around the height of Semisonic? Yeah, or like in, you know, it was probably painted during the time when we were writing the first batch of songs and practicing a lot. Do you find that you have a... You have periods of your painting? My visual art has definitely some really weird periods. Like uh, maybe like six years ago, I got really, really into calligraphy. And I and I started doing like tons and tons of calligraphy. And I kind of perfected my, my fracture and my black letter and, and kind of got to know some crazed calligraphers online and like really kind of made a a practice of it. And I still do it, but but I really was very obsessed with it for like five years. It was really interesting. And then now, like my current visual art um, uh, side is is pretty chilled out. I made a I, I uh, created a font recently that I'm using for a project that I'm doing. You created a font. I <laughs> yeah, I created a font. Was that something that you had been wanting to do for some time, or how does how does one? None of the fonts looked the way I wanted them to, so I made one of my own. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a serious personal question? Yeah, sure, yeah. Are you a micromanager? No, I'm not a micromanager, but I'm very compulsive. Like if I, you know, um, like if I were, if I, if I played golf, I would play golf every day. Or if I, if I did, if I knit sweaters, I would knit like a sweater a week. I just like, I, so it's not really like, I don't reach into other people's lives and micromanage them. I just like, I just have crazes that I go through. I'm like that to some degree as yeah. well, but it's an easy way to burn yourself out on something. Well, I think that might be why I, I, that might be why I went from like five years of crazy calligraphy to the next several years, like trying different fonts. My, there's a, the, a thing I do on Instagram, uh, which is like, um, it's called words and music in six seconds. And I, um, I say some advice into the camera and then I make just a nice, um, piece of text against a cream colored paper background uh, that says the same thing that I said. One of them is, uh, if you like it, then it's good. If it sounds good to you, then it sounds good. And I just like say these things into the camera and then I make a a little, almost like a a text card or like a, you know, like one of those, um, like in old silent movies where where the dialogue would come up on a card. How much forethought goes into one of those is that something that you're thinking about for a while or do you just kind of blurt it out on a camera the way i do that um this is sort of typical my working method in a lot of things i write a bunch of them and then i choose the best couple and i make a clip out of them so there might be like seven or eight i, I might on a weekend i might just sort of like sit down in a chair or in the house at, at the kitchen table and just like write six or eight things that feel like what used to be called aphorisms about music. And then later, like a couple of days later, I'll look at them and I'll be like, oh, well, these, these, these five or six are terrible, but these, these two are good. And then I'll just, then I'll record those. You need distance from it. You need to kind of walk away and reassess them. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like, I don't know, if I write a song, I don't know. I usually think it's great, but that's just because I'm like, yeah, you know, but I, I, it's not necessarily true. <laughs> just what I think. How does that process of doing a bunch of them, how does that manifest itself in, in music making? Are, are you speaking of actually just writing extra songs for an album? Is it, is it extra ideas? 
Yeah. Well, everybody's different, you know, and I do know some people who write the exact number of songs required by their practice. Bare minimum. The bare minimum. But I'm the opposite. I'm like a maximalist in, you know, in in many things. And uh, I have found that I really need to be comfortable with like 90% of the songs I write never getting heard by anybody. Is that a real number? Pretty much, yeah. Really? Yeah, 80 is a great year if i have if one out of five or one out of four things that that i write is heard by somebody in the course of a year that's an amazing year because that's like way better than the usual usually i have to write uh you know yeah eight or ten songs to get two good ones and maybe one great one but probably need to write another 20 to get to one great one it's it's wood shedding it's just making sure that you're writing every day yeah just banging it out I i think uh the really, really good ones come quickly and easily. For me, though, they don't come unless I've been doing a lot of songs. So if I'm just in that habit of mind of like writing, writing, writing all the time, then if I get a good idea, and if I get lucky in a good idea, you know, some ideas are, are, are will never turn into a song. You think they will, they never do. Some ideas are so good that they just like, they, they, it's easy. You know, it just, you just got to get lucky. So if I get that idea, that really good idea, and I've just been like on fire for weeks writing songs, then the, uh, the outcome is a really quickly written song that's actually really good. How consistent is that number? I mean, are there, there must be just weeks or even months where you just, you write a ton of stuff and nothing really sticks. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's definitely ups and downs. I once had an intern of mine make me, I said, make me a chart, some kind of visual representation of all the songs I wrote last year and what happened to them. So we, between the two of us, we, we, we invented this kind of matrix from left to right was like January 1st to December 31st. And then from bottom to top was like, no, no song, nothing, zero. And then half finished song, Completely finished song, nobody hears it. Finished demo, recorded, master, released by label, single, uh, charting. You know, like every, like we made this kind of like, and I had this uh, uh, intern of mine do this. And he, first of all, he drew every song like as though it was an under undersea frond of like kelp. So it was like it, it had a, a little stalk coming up from the date and then the title, the title on a leaf. And the bottom rank of like demos was this crowded kelp forest. And then like, you know, five or six, seven songs made it up into released. And then like a couple got put out as singles. And, you know, like it was very, very, like over the course of a year, like it's, it was interesting to see how comfortable I had to be with like, you know, so many songs are just part of a kelp forest at the bottom and they're not coming out. Is that a useful exercise to, to visualize it like that? Well, I don't know because it didn't hurt my feelings, but I showed it to some um, young friends who are songwriters and I was like, look at this. And they looked at it and they were like, what is this? Like kind of terrified. And I was like, this is all my songs from last year and what happened to them. And they're like, Oh God. Oh Jesus. No. There's definitely a, a generational divide there. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, you're very much from 
the school of going through not just record labels, but having having gone through majors and thinking about things like, you know, being played on the radio versus if you're coming up and producing music through the internet age, um, you know, I, maybe maybe they don't bet as strongly, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe people are more willing to kind of to put stuff out there regardless of whether or not they think it's, you know, the, the top of the kelp bed or not. In that case, though, you'd have the, diff- you would just, you would, if you wanted to, you don't even have to do this. A person, person doesn't have to care about any of these things. But if you wanted to, you could put like the top rank would be like viral on TikTok. And the next, you know, the, you could have your different, your, your different values of what you thought was like an exciting outcome. And I think you'd still, in that world, you're not going to be getting, going viral on some internet platform you know, eight times a year, that would be like incredible, you know, but mainly what I did it for was I, 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 my intern and I were talking about how many songs he's a really, he was a really, he's a really good songwriter. And he was like, how many songs did you, and he was asking me all these questions. And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. And he, and I was like, you do, do some, re- like find, you find out and make me a chart and show me what happened. And he was actually, he's a very prolific, um, he's like 25 or 24 right now. And he's very prolific. He's like very obsessive like me. And so he makes a lot of tracks and he, and, and he gets critiqued by his friends because, you know, a lot of his tracks are, are kind of shit. But then, you know, every, every once in a while, they're great, you know. And, but to me, that's the, that is a great approach if that's, if that's who you are as an artist, you know. So I think it kind of validated his like, he was like, oh, this is, I'm cool with this. You said that there is a sense of you kind of knowing right away whether or not it's a, a good song or not. But um, how important is external validation for that process of making it up the rings of kelp? Well, I almost feel like that's not quite random. I mean, but it's relatively random. It's not really like, you can't really, I just listened to a song that I wrote um, several years ago that nothing happened to. And I love it. I think it's so good. And um I think you just have to be comfortable with that. Like, it's, it's like, oh, wow, this is a really, really great song. I've, I, I could play it for my friends at a party and they'd be like, whoa, what, wow, what are you going to do with this song? And I'm like, no, nothing's going to happen with that one. Or, you know, I'm, I, I still believe in it, but I got to be comfortable with nothing happening. Because every once in a while, lightning strikes. And if you write good songs, a lot of them, maybe it happens more often. What percentage of those songs do you actually show or, you know, do you actually play for other people? I play them if I'm excited. I play them for somebody. Or I send somebody a file, you know, or I, or I play it on FaceTime to to a friend or whatever. But so a lot of them just no one ever hears. No, and I kind of have to. I mean, I don't know because sometimes maybe there's a. I you know, I don't know. I think I think if someone, I think the process is slightly random. But as far as external validation, like I'm like anybody else, I like a little bit of external validation. Like I definitely like it, but. It's definitely a path to kind of rage and dissatisfaction because mm. once you care a lot about external validation, which is fine, then you have to be really mad if people don't love something that you think is really worthy. Then you have to get like super pissed and, you know, drive yourself crazy. And, and so there's some kind of ironic, I don't know, personally, I have to feel like it's not a linear relationship between how awesome a song is and what happens to it. Or you might write a great song five years ago and then a slightly less good song last year and all the good things happen to the slightly less good song. But it's sort of like it's, it's somehow weirdly connected to the great thing that no one ever heard. I think it's all kind of 
tangled in there together. The biggest in your career, whether it's something you, you performed or, or for some, someone else, you know, is there something when, when, when you're able to reflect on them, is there something special about them? How much of it is just timing and luck? Well, I think there's a lot of timing and luck for sure. Uh, I, and the songs that I've had that have like made a strong impact have been maybe have had, you know, disproportionate amount of timing and luck. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I, some, I, in the past I have felt kind of envious of friends of mine who, even if they don't have a handful of massively connecting songs, they have like a, a track record, a, you know, that's more consistent. Like they can, they can, you know, just put in the effort and get a top 10 hit. And I've always thought that that would be cool to be able to be that person, but I'm not that person. I, I either, I either connect on a visceral, weirdly personal level with people, or it just, just doesn't happen. I don't have that track record of like, Oh, the reliable, you know, top 10, you know, he can always get us a medium hit. She, she knows how to lay it down in this, you know, at least the, kids will eat it up. You know, I mean, I've often been a little jealous not to have it be so inconsistent for me, but that's just, I'm lucky in one way and other people are lucky in others. I'm, you know, I'm very aware. Does closing time feel like, does it feel different than any of your other songs? Or again, was it just, was it right place, right time? Well, if closing time had come out two years later or something, then everything that was happening two years later was like, all this ultra masculine, like mean music, like Limp Biscuit, you know, the least, the least mean uh, band amongst our peers was like Rage Against the Machine, which is also, which was still super loud and, you know, like, you know, like yeah, very, very masculine. So we, closing time was a, a sort of a, not a, you know, not a macho, it, loud guitars, but not a macho vibe at all. And, the window to like sort of wimpy, uh, gentle singing over loud guitars was briefly open and then it closed again. So yeah, per- the timing was perfect. But I think I opened the window a little bit. So, you know, I don't think it was, I think it was because that song was so good it maybe it held the window open a little longer, you know. Is part of the key to, to having a sustained, successful career as a songwriter, the ability to chase trends to some degree well once again like i wouldn't know that because i don't think i'm good at that i i don't think i can i don't and that would be those people that i feel like are like you know the reliable top 10 you know if it's not it may not shatter the earth but it's definitely going to chart certain people are really good at that and that's because they know what kick drum is is really good right now and they it's so often it's those songs that have like 10 different co-writing credits on them could well be yeah yeah but i but in my case you know, like, for example, certain things that were successful for me, like I was hanging out with Chris Stapleton and writing songs and we went down to New Orleans and we wrote uh, with a Preservation Hall jazz band and his, his, he, his career was not happening yet and everyone knew he was a genius in Nashville. But so when we wrote um, When the Stars Come Out, we just wrote that because we were friends. And he said, you know, we, let's write a song about you and your family moving to LA. And I was like, okay, cool. So we, you know, so we get that song. And then that song becomes part of Traveler, which was this incredible breakthrough for him. Just amazing moment for him of, of like people finally realizing, oh my gosh, this guy's so amazing. And then 
I think at least my community are like, Dan, how did you get on Chris Stapleton's record? How did you get, like as though I had chased the trend of Chris, but the fact is there was no trend of Chris. Chris when we wrote a song, it was just because we were hanging out and we were friends. It wasn't me spotting some sort of like success in the in, on the horizon. I just loved hanging out with him and his, his brilliance. Flip side of that is when you do have success, it must be difficult to not chase it you know to not to not very specifically try to recreate whatever that magic was yeah i mean i mean that is difficult you know it's funny because my self-awareness makes it hard for me to answer that question completely i i I, you know i know that i'm ridiculously uh lucky and and that my you know privilege as all the go down the list white male you know uh, all kinds of things about me straight um, have made my life easier in so many ways, you know? So I can't really like, I don't really feel, I guess for couching anything in terms of difficulty, I just can't like, I can't get my head around it because I just like, it's like almost like I, I was, I was willing to have it turn out a lot less awesome and still be really into being a musician. Let's rephrase it then. You know, it must be enticing to try to recreate that, to recapture some of that magic. I would even say, yes, I agree with you. Okay, closing time. Semisonic had made a record called Great Divide, which I thought of as like Simon and Garfunkel heart with loud guitar. And I really tried hard to make the the lyrics of Great Divide be really almost like singer-songwriter, metaphorical, you know, poetry professor kind of, you know, 70s music. I was really into that idea. That, you know, was not a success. And what to do next, a friend of mine said, if you feel like you did the right thing and people didn't get it, one strategy would be just do it again. Don't adapt. So I was really attracted by that thought. So when we did Feeling Strangely Fine, it really was just like side B of Great Divide. It was like the next album was just a second half of that first album. And we had learned a lot. And we worked with Nick Launay, who was an amazing foil for us as a producer. But it really was like the same. It wasn't a follow-up and success. It was like a, it was like a doubling down on essentially failure. The record was seen, the Great Divide was like a flop. And we were like, we're going to do Great Divide again. So we did. And then the result was Feeling Strangely Fine, which became huge. And... At that point, my restlessness just couldn't do it again. I, I, I knew another 70s uh, uh, poetry professor music disguised in loud guitar would be great, but I couldn't do it. So we ended up doing All About Chemistry, which is like keyboards and synths and like, you know, not a lot of simple loud guitar I mean, Get a Grip is a silly song, but, but with loud guitar. But generally speaking, it was a whole different vibe. It was not the, uh, the strategic, you know, masterstroke. So your impulse to repeat yourself was, in fact, the, like, antithesis sort of, of chasing success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, wasn't being, I wasn't being contrary. I just had done it for two albums, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it for another album. And I had... So All About Chemistry was full of also maybe more sad feelings because uh, my daughter had been, was in the hospital for much of All About Chemistry and then she was in, uh, a, you know, a kind of dangerous infancy for 
many, many months during all about chemistry. And so that record was just different. I just couldn't help it. It had to be different. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah it is tempting to want to follow up on success, but it's hard to be that guy twice in a row, you know? When you're struggling with something like that, does it, does it make the process of, I mean, you know, now is as good a, uh, an example as any, where obviously everybody is struggling to some degree or another. Does music feel trivial or is it something that you really throw yourself into to process some of these feelings? On a good day, I am very confident that music is non-trivial. As far as communication goes, it's like a, it's like a, a, a very powerful, very amplifying, hard to control, but, but amplifying way to get one's own vibes out into the world. And we just want to be heard. Like people want to be heard and they want to be seen and, you know, felt. And I think if, if you're a musician that can connect with people, then music is a, it's a really powerful way of connecting and it, and it amplifies the, the vibes that you might have as a person. And I think if it's doing what it's supposed to do in some sense, it's also improving people's lives. It's making people's moments and days happier. It's making people feel good. It's giving people a sense of common experience or common humanity that makes them feel more connected and less isolated and so i feel like it's on a good day i don't feel like music is trivial and on you know on a bad day i wonder what i'm doing with my life but i i don't let's say i was in politics and i was like trying to get somebody elected i'd probably feel the same way half the time i'd probably feel like this is the most important thing and then like i'd feel like who cares 10 years from now no one's gonna care you know on that record specifically, though, on, on All About Chemistry, were you using the music as catharsis to deal with that problem at the time? I think I was. I think I also, I think some of the songs, I thought I was writing them about one thing. And then, and then as we were recording them, I, was, I realized that I was writing them about another thing. I, you know, I might, She's Got My Number was about, I thought I was writing about my wife and, and our, the, the funny power, the back and forth of, of, you know, the relationship and who's on top and, you know, who's power dynamic. Yeah. Who's yeah. Who's the power dynamic. And then um, later when we listened to it, my wife and I, she said, you know, this is about Coco, which is our daughter's name. This is about your, this is about Coco, like taking over your life. And I was like, yeah, I think it is, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't. And maybe I was too worried about Coco to, to say something about her in a song that I was aware of, but, it, but later I was like, Oh yeah, a bunch of these songs are, there's a, there's a little darkness in them. There's definitely some like desperation in them that like act naturally is, is definitely a very desperate song about just trying to figure out a way to pretend to that life is worth living when you're super scared and, and hopeless. Is that a common occurrence for you putting something down and having a different relationship to the lyrics or realizing that the lyrics were different than you had initially thought yeah for sure for sure i've kind of had to accept that's like a it's funny because a lot of the push and pull for me about music has been you know humility versus intention or kind of glory so i'm trying to make something happen and the opposite thing happens or I'm trying to say something in a song and it turns out later that 
I was really saying something else. And, and the something else was the part that everyone liked, not the part that I thought I was doing, you know, and, and something about having some, you know, um, drive that sort of wants to make something happen and then finding out that the thing that people are resonating to was part of your unintention, unintentional, you know, behavior. It's just interesting. And you have to be more humble about it, I think. It can be frustrating, right? You know, you almost like, this is an impulse that I've had to deal with in the stuff that I put out in the world. And I think anyone who does anything creative does to, to some degree is you like, you know, you want people to approach stuff on your terms. And, you know, maybe it's like, it's a bad impulse to be frustrated when people like your least favorite thing. Yeah. Or even, I totally agree. And I think there's another thing, which is like, well, I have like one of my, one of my sort of aphoristic themes is um, if there's if 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 you have a batch of songs and one of them embarrasses you and makes you feel awkward, then that's the one. That's the best one. That's the one that everyone's going to like. That's the one. If you want, if you need to pick a song to show someone, you pick the one that makes you feel the most awkward and possibly even embarrassed. And I don't really know exactly why, but it's be partly I think it's because we want people to like our stuff for the reason we intend for them to like it. And if there's something in a song you recognize like, oh, this has got some power and some magic, but it's not what I intended, then you're going to want to almost hide it from people. I'm not embarrassed that you don't think it's a, a good or well-executed song, but maybe that, that the subject matter is too deeply personal. Perhaps. So. I mean, uh, I don't mean embarrassed like, oh, this is terrible, but I mean embarrassed like, uh, just like, or, you know, or it's too, it, it could be anything. Depends on what your your personal prejudices are. Like it may be too, if it's too silly or you think it's preachy and it embarrasses you because you're trying, because you're going out on a limb and you're being preachy or, or you think it's, um, it reveals something nasty about your human character, you know, that kind of embarrassment, not, not because the guitar part sucks or, or the lyrics are bad, but more like, I just feel embarrassed and I don't know why. That's just an awful line that it's a good thing. Do you feel that at, at certain points in your career that you've had to sort of fight against being too earnest? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm very earnest. So it's something, and, and I guess I, I ask like somewhat from the standpoint of like, I've noticed that for you know, when, when, when musicians are younger, they tend to fight against earnestness a lot, you know, they, they, they maybe it's not punk enough or, you right. know, maybe they're worried about cliche, but um, people seem to kind of ease into earnestness throughout their career. You know, it's funny because I, in my, maybe when I was 25 or 24, 25, um, and I was in Trip Shakespeare and I was trash talking everybody with, you know, and we were all trash talking each other. Like Elaine wouldn't trash talk me and I would, I didn't really trash talk her, but like the guys would all trash talk each other and the sound man would trash talk us all. And Cause you're quite literally, your brother was in the band. So. My brother was in the band. So he and I are sort of, yeah, he and I are sort of like, you know, we would, we would have verbally joust, you know, but I think, you know, you got to do it. You got to do it right. You can't, the person, you can't make people miserable, you know? And, 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 there was one point when John um, from Trip Shakespeare, who also was in Semisonic, took me aside like, and said, hey, man, 
you're really trash talking me way too much and it's just bumming me out and uh, you got to stop. And he, he was, this was a very earnest moment and he was usually very uh, lighthearted, but I, I think I just had been extra barbed or like, I didn't know that I was being, that my wit was going the wrong direction or whatever. And so I, I trained myself out of it with him, but then I, but then I kind of accidentally trained myself out of it with everybody. And I just, stopped entirely trash talking anybody and so almost the only moments in my life where somebody thinks i'm being sarcastic are they it's because i said something that they couldn't imagine i really meant it and so they assume that i'm being sarcastic but i'm never being sarcastic so my earnestness is like i don't know john munson is to blame for for for, for making it even worse but i've just always been like super earnest like i can't I can't turn that off. So I think it's a probably ultimately a good quality in a songwriter. It allows you to not realize that you're delving into, you know, too much information or being too honest or what, you know, or be, or being, you know, like it allows you to stumble into those embarrassing areas that you realize later are, are awkward, which is good. What do you attribute the fact to you that you all still like each other? <laughs> <laughs> especially this guy that you were like in another band with, you know, what do you attribute the fact to you that like you still uh, once a year or however often still get together and enjoy being in the company of each other? We had a, um, one thing that Semisonic had that my other bands didn't have was like a, a we, we started out with some, with a manifesto that I, that I cooked up, which was pretty simple, but it was like, if we're working on a song, the whole rehearsal and it doesn't sound good, then I will throw it away and write another song. That's one. If we're playing and playing and nothing sounds good and it just is bumming us out, we have to all go to the bar and hang out instead. Life is more important than music. Those were like the three uh, prongs of the manifesto. So what it led to is, was me and John and Jacob having a lot of time hanging out at the bar and just laughing and talking and also not sweating it when this is not something I had a brilliant master plan. I, I just didn't want to, I just was like, I'm going to write a different song. If this one sucks, let's just throw it away. I'll write a new song. Let's not like labor. And it, it allowed us to have in a stressful life and in a kind of like roller coaster type of life, it allowed us to have a kind of a light touch with the music. And, and, and I think that allowed us to enjoy each other more because, you know, life is more important than music. So a lot of times we'd be like, We'd tell management, hey, we're going to go see Big Ben. We'd be in like London and they'd go, oh, no, no, we need you to be on time for such and such of an interview. And, and we'd be like, no, it's, it'll be fine. We'll be, we'll, 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 we promise we'll come back in time. We have, we have to ride the London Eye or whatever. Like we would just have to do these stupid tourism things. And we just always somehow, it just seemed so important to go out and have fun. And that was a positive, that really bonded us. Did the math on that change at all, though, once you have a, a big hit? You know, once once there's this whole, basically, machine relying on your success? And your and your punctuality. I will say you were very punctual tonight, so you, you, you've definitely, <laughs> you're, you're good on that front. Well, I'm, I'm very punctual if I'm staying at home all day, every day, and with nowhere to go. Big success was challenging for us, but not, not as much as life was challenging, interestingly. And, uh, and 
during the whole time that closing time was a, was a smash, for example, very, very different, a change of scenery for the band. But during that whole time, my Coco was in the hospital in intensive care for eight months and then another four months in a step-down clinic in the hospital. And all of us, because we had had this whole other lives before, you know, John and, and I were in Trip Shakespeare before. We had already done the, like, this, the kind of, ah, you know, must win. Yeah, I mean, you were on a major label. You had been yeah, through we that had machine. Played that game. Yeah, it was, was no novelty. And here was this, like, real, very, very daunting life predicament that we were weathering. The guys with me, like, they were by my side and like, well, I was losing my mind sometimes and they had to really be like super supportive. And it, it just kind of eclipsed a lot of what probably would have been like, and we still had fun, but we didn't really register like, oh, this is amazing or like, we're great or whatever. We didn't really, we, we, we missed some of that because of life. Do you feel like the pressure was harder on you than it was on the other two guys? Oh, I, don't, I can't really say. I was always the one who had to write more songs, but I liked writing songs, so and it came easily. So it's not really like I, I can complain about that. But it sounds like they were kind of your support group to some degree. But when they had trouble, we were we supported them, you know. It's, but I feel like for me, like I think one thing with Semisonic, and one of the reasons why, like my the next chapter for me has been helping other people be a star. I think one of the reasons is that I'm not really a natural star. Like I don't, I'm not really inclined to blow up in public or, you know, date people because it would be a good marketing move or. You're not a diva. I don't do that stuff. And I don't, and I also don't like, I don't wear my heart on my sleeve in that way. Like in my songs I do, and that's why my songs are lasting. But like, I don't, you know, the real stars have a kind of almost like transparency about their faces. Like you could just feel their inner life just by looking at them. And I, I don't have that quality. And so the, if I had a struggle in those semi-sonic days, it was like, okay, what can I do to substitute for that? I'm not going to like fall down the stairs at the Grammys and I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to like shatter the ice sculpture at the you know, universal music party or whatever, you know, so what? What can I do? You know, that was, that was maybe one of my challenges. In writing, they call it killing your darlings, you know, mm. of, mm. Did, did that, was that something that came naturally? It's, I mean, it sounds like that was a big part of not only Semisonic's DNA and, and what kept the band together, but that it's just kind of a part of your life now. Uh, was it hmm. more difficult in those early days to just abandon stuff that wasn't working? I think in the trip Shakespeare time, uh, I was almost like my brother was what Matt was very, very prolific in, in the trip Shakespeare machinery, you know, the artistic thing that we had going. And he wrote a lot of songs and a lot of them were so good. And then once in a while he'd write a song that was partially finished and then I would finish that. Or sometimes I would write an idea that he would, excuse me, that he would finish himself. And I was definitely driven to try to make that happen more. Like I liked it. When he wrote, when he and I wrote a song together in one way or another, I wasn't trying to write 100% songs that took over the band, but I was definitely clamoring for like his brilliance to be applied to my ideas, you know. And I think in that way, Trip Shakespeare was more like scarcity, chipping away at songs, not that many songs a year, you know. If you're gonna get something on a record, it, it has to be 
of the 12 songs you wrote that year, it has to be the one of the best. You know what I mean? It was like, so, so maybe reversing that from semi-sonic until the present was just my way of acknowledging what, what I like better rather than what I think is smart. I think it was, you know, like I did some writing with Andrew Bird. He's fantastic. And he, and he was, he's one of those friends of mine who just doesn't write that many extra things. He writes yeah. what's, what he needs and it works really well he's also just a genius by any measure from what i could tell yeah so yeah the things that come out of him is just channeling god you know but so but i kind of i decided that the way to go was was to like be a just saw a movie about um about octopuses and they have like a thousand babies but they don't tend to them at all they just throw a thousand eggs into the ocean and there's like okay good luck i'm I'm, I'm out of here. You're saying this a little bit before that you, that to some degree it's important to feel that what you're making it is important, but it's, it's hard to, um, to walk that line and also to feel that it's important in the moment that you're creating it, but also be willing to just completely dispose of it. Uh, uh, the way I do it is honestly, like I was saying before, like, this is not really, it's neither good nor bad, but like when I'm working on a song, I'm so hopeful. I'm like, this is, I think we're really onto something. And then we chase down, or I chase down if I'm alone, the idea to whatever its kind of natural conclusion is, or, you know, it, it leads, we chase, it leads, we run, we chase, we finish, it's done. And then a few days later, you can listen and go, oh, that wasn't as good as I thought. Or, wow, I really like this. You know, I hope everyone likes this. It sounds like that, that distance is an incredibly important part of the equation. I think so. I find if I, if I want to play it for people, usually it's good. I mean, but it's hard to recognize that in the moment. Like if I'm like, oh God, I hope people like this, that already means it's good. But, but I don't, I'm not self-aware enough to remember that when I have that thought, I already, I already know. I might be thinking I'm looking for high fives from the people around me, but actually I already know it's good. I just want them to agree. Do, do you find that sort of like the stone cold classics or however you want to refer to them are songs that come more easily generally? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. If I, if, I'm, if I labor over something, it's then I'm just practicing being a songwriter, which is fine. We hear all these stories about people basically just like channeling, you know, like the, or, or having divine inspiration. And mm-hmm. I even wonder if that is, those stories are kind of counterproductive to the creative process because they really perhaps raise your expectations in unrealistic ways. Okay, yeah, I could see it that way. But... There's the heartbreak right there, because if you write a song in a short time and you feel like at that moment you were channeling a higher power or like the gods of songwriting, you know, that's like being favored. That's like being, you know, Odysseus finally coming home and killing his enemies. That's like the gods are on your side for that moment. But but it, then it puts the rest of life in a stark relief, you know, because most of the time you're not uh Odysseus arriving home and killing his enemies you're you're Odysseus on a, an odyssey and so there is it's not that it's an unuseful metaphor it's just a heartbreaking metaphor it's it's a you know it's just like shit i was van morrison you know channeling a higher power on astral weeks why couldn't i make it happen the same every time ah you know or maybe if i'm like putting all this effort into it maybe it's not worth it because it's clearly not going to be as good of a song as the one that just came to me in the middle of the night 
But you, 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 if you're knocking at the door of the songwriting gods and, and trying, 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 you know, and they're not answering, you're still going to try. So that, you know, the, I mean, I, I agree with you, but I feel like it actually, it actually captures the part of being an artist that's, the, that's very difficult because you don't always get the visitation. Do you have a, a process for what to do when, I mean, there must just be times, you know, you, I, you set aside a certain amount of time per day to work on songs, or, or maybe you have like a number of songs you want to write in a given week. What, what do you do when it's just absolutely not coming? Well, when things are like, I have a kind of eclectic, like on my plate is a, is a bunch of different tasks, you know, and maybe it's like play fretless bass on this song by Alison Pontier, or maybe it's, um, Oh, such and such of, you know, somebody calls and they want a, an instrumental version of a song or, or they want to, you know, can you take out, can you make, can you strip it down and make it like more minimal? And I can say, take some time and do that if I'm not feeling like writing lyrics or, or sometimes I take, if I have a half finished song with an artist or on my own and I have an afternoon and it looks kind of clear, then maybe I'm like, okay, this could be like a day to write lyrics. So I can almost use the things the various types of, ta- like, you know, drum, playing the drums on something or, pro- or programming some in- instruments on something is such a very different thing than like just, you know, scratching your head and thinking about the words and singing different lines. And it's, it's like almost the opposite. More, it's, it's almost like an athletic thing versus a conceptual thing, you know. Obviously, you're somebody who's interested in a lot of different areas. You know, you do the, the painting, as we were discussing earlier. You, yeah. you seem like really engage in social media, you know, the thing that you sort of do to, to, to distract yourself is often just creating music in different ways. Yeah. 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 That's like, a. Uh, I find it, you know, it's just really fulfilling and comforting to me to make something that, to be on the chase, to make something that I believe could be the real deal. Like to have that visitation from, on high you know it's 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 rare but now that i've had it happen periodically i do want it to happen again i can't i can't make it but i i want to give it an opportunity to happen does songwriting get any easier no (laughs) no (laughs) does it get harder uh maybe i i i think um like with the new semisonic ep it took me a lot of effort and time to get to get into that mental space where my ideas sounded like the band. And as I work with a lot of people, I had to almost treat myself as like one of my collaborators and like get into my own space with myself. And that took a lot of time and effort. And it was, I think, you know, as time goes by and we live more life we have too much perspective on lots of things. And for me, like I needed to shed a lot of perspective in order to write some good semi-sonic songs because I just needed to have that one perspective. Whereas when I was 29 and 30 and writing those semi-sonic songs, uh, the first batch, you know, 31, 32, I only had my one perspective. I wasn't wise and I wasn't, I, I was narrow. You know, I was kind of deep, but I was also kind of narrow and I could just be that guy. 
and it was straightforward. So do you have to write a song that is a semi-sonic song? Do you have to inhabit that guy again? Well, uh, that was what I thought. But uh, then when I experimented with that, I found that there was no really great way in. Like, I didn't know. I You could say that, but then... <laughs> And I would be like, just go oh, get it. Like, go get an apartment, leave your family, <laughs> eat ramen, and right, eat some ramen. Yeah, it was really no way back to that. But I did get, I did figure out some ways to just uh, remember. Like it's silly, but a lot of those songs were written on a very small Gibson guitar from the '40s, an LG one, just tiny little parlor guitar, what they call them, I think, and um, it was nasal. It was like, meh, meh, meh. like the notes that it played. It wasn't like, blah, you know, like rich and full. It wasn't full and lush. And, it was like, yeah. meh, meh, meh. and it was great for writing riffs because it just barked, you know. And so I ended up writing like FNT on a very small acoustic guitar. And I ended up writing not maybe even closing time on a small acoustic because it just kind of barks in a little bit more like an electric guitar way. One thing that I found was like getting like, even though my my Gibson SJ is uh, my favorite guitar, it's not super great for writing semi-sonic songs because it doesn't. It's big and warm and kind of enveloping and campfire-ish. It feels like the ultimate, you know, like accompaniment guitar. And I once I started getting back to like, oh, I need either an electric or a small acoustic that just barks loudly. It was easier to write the semi-sonic songs. It sounds kind of mechanical, but it does get you in the right frame of mind. It's mechanical, but it's also, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it, it also, it's also a pretty good metaphor. <laughs> the difference between this sort of a tinny little guitar that where a few notes pick up and this sort of you know, richer, lusher sound, and it sounds like emotionally you're in similar places. Where now you have this, like, this, this, this much wider palette to, to draw from. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's harder to channel that same immediacy that you had early on. And to, and to just be, and accept a kind of a narrow, like even in semi-sonic times when at, at the most clear, like in retrospect, it feels, those songs feel recognizably us to me. But even then I was a somewhat eclectic artist and songwriter and it took me effort to recognize which songs were just me, you know, going, oh, I can, I can also write this country flavored thing. Like, who cares? But, uh, you know, I, sometimes you end up writing things because you can. And you have to remember, like, well, no one needs a country song from Dan. It's not necessary. Your third record, you were perfectly willing to make something different. Yeah. Do you think your time has, like caused your image of what the band is to sort of contract to kind of to kind of crystallize i guess to be more static than it really was Mm. in the moment um, i'm not going to say no in some ways like to me just getting back to home base putting my foot on home base and going okay this is this is the center of that thing i was doing i needed to touch that and we had you need to tether yourself to something it's like here's yeah here's where the kind of that, that was where, that that was home for me, but then we did um, like we were for the EP, which has five songs. We recorded like ten or twelve, and the outliers of that are are very eclectic. And a friend of mine uh, offered to listen to all the songs and to pick the middle of it. You know, like not the middle of the road. I mean, just like what's the 
what's the point and how, you know, simplifying. And so the things that Jamie picked were, uh, were, well, first of all, they, they were all songs that, that, he didn't know this, but they were all songs that are easy to play as a trio. We just, no problem. We just get up and play and it's done. You know, it's like there was not, no tricky things about them. So he didn't know that, but that was what he picked. And they were kind of a little bit on the, like louder and maybe a little beatlier than I would have chosen myself, but it gave it a vibe. And, and I think uh, if you choose a, if you choose some limitations, you got to trust yourself and say, well, I'm not, it's not because I'm being cautious. I just want specificity. And then within that specificity, I can, I can push my limits and try things and be as awesome as, as I want to be. You need parameters to focus on something to really yeah, exactly. to get anything done. Because otherwise you're, you're, you don't know what you're doing. And, and that's my impression. Is there a sense that Semisonic is going to be something that is with you for the rest of your life or less of your playing career, that it's something that you can keep going back to? I hope so. I love the guys and I, I love the way we sound when we play. And inshallah, we will be able to continue playing our instruments and enjoying that. It's, it's not guaranteed for many reasons, but I definitely... I love the thought, you know, and I want to make more music with them. I have a, I have a small batch of starts for songs that I kind of want to finish and send to them, get them excited. And then we'll have to figure out some way to, you know, get this pandemic behind us and get to do a big recording session again. At some point in that like 16 year gap between records, it wasn't certain that the band would get back together again. No, no. And and John would always say, so, you know, you have any songs or like he, he'd always kind of bug me about it. And, and, and I'd say, yeah, no, I don't. I tried. And I, and I wrote a couple more songs that just weren't good. And uh, I think John, his attitude would have been like, oh, stop, you know, just, just give us the songs, you know, like it doesn't matter. But I really needed them to be, awesome to 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 go through with it but i think that during that time i definitely made some portion of peace with it like maybe this isn't maybe i'm not gonna be able to do this again so i have to be able to be happy as a musician if i can't get that vibe back i used to read interviews by robert plant when he would try to explain to people why he wouldn't do the zillion dollar led zeppelin reunion because he just didn't know how to be that guy and I thought, that's, that's amazing. Like, can you imagine all the reasons you would fool yourself into doing the reunion just to be a golden god again? The fact that he would, would not be swayed by that and just go, I just don't know how to sing like that guy anymore. Like, to me, that's amazing. Do you feel like a golden god? <laughs> when I'm playing with my guys? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But I do feel like I'm part of something. I do yeah. feel like I'm part of something. It's nice.